A number of years ago, Penn Gillette, an entertainer, a magician, a comedian, and an avid and vocal atheist said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. There we go. (laughs) If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them because this would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Friends, I just want to say when an atheist gets it, but so many Christians don't, there's a problem. I mean, how much do you have to hate someone to know and have the means of salvation and to keep it to yourself? Now, I don't want you to worry today. We're not talking about hate. We want to talk about love today. Not hate, love, okay? That's where we're going today. We're going to land today in our fourth core commitment, and that is to go show and tell the gospel boldly. Let me say it again, to go show and tell the gospel boldly. This is the fourth core commitment of four core commitments of a six-week series that we've been talking about who we are and who we're going to be as the Lord forms us and makes us into Calvary Church. Our vision to make Jesus non-ignorable in Monta Vista and to the ends of the earth. We want Jesus to be as non-ignorable as the non-ignorable things of our lives, like the mountains around us, the sun in the sky, in a better year, the Broncos. We do that with our mission. That is to make joyful, passionate disciples of Jesus. Church, nobody likes curmudgeons. And there's no room in the kingdom of God for curmudgeons. For bitter, angry people. Because we have been redeemed by Christ and made alive and given the keys to the kingdom. So we talk about our vision, we talk about our mission, and we've worked through our core commitments. The first was to worship God passionately. The second, to connect with one another authentically. The third, to grow to know God deeply. And that leads us finally to go show and tell the gospel boldly. Now I want to tell you today, my hope for us is that this would not be one of those mornings where you let the sermon and you let the word of God go in one ear and out the other. My hope for us is that today would not be the kind of day where you check off, made it to church, check off, heard a sermon, check off, was pleased with Jesus, and then go on with the rest of your life. That can happen every other Sunday, but not this one, okay? My hope is that what this message will do in your head, your heart, and your life is cause you to go from this place with a vision and a mission anew and fresh. And for some of you, today is going to be the biggest challenge you've ever received, I pray and hope. Now, I want to tell you, I think this hope is realistic because I think God's at work in this church. And I think God's at work in you. And I think we are on the edge of seeing the power of God move in spectacular ways through his people. Amen? Amen. 
So we want to talk about love. And to do so, we're going to start off in the book of 1 Corinthians in what is often dubbed the love chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you've ever been to a wedding, Christian or secular, you've heard this passage. If you've ever had a wedding, you probably had this wedding or passage at your wedding. Not all of us, but most of us. This has so much more to say than about marriage. Now, if you are married, this should inform your marriage. It should inform who you are and how you interact with your spouse. It should inform and interact uh, how you interact with your kids, if you have kids, and your, your family, your neighbors, everybody. So I want to start here, and I want us to see the picture that Paul is painting. He says this, starting in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging Symbol. Now, I'm going to pause there really quick because I know that I can be a noisy gong and a clanging symbol. Some of you are like, Pastor, it's time to calm down. <laughs> Let me just tell you, that's not going to change. But if I ever doing it without love, I need you to tell me, okay? Because I don't want to be a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. Verse two, he says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The apostle Paul here posits a scenario, one that is unfortunately true when he's writing, and it may or may not be true for us or our own experience. This is a scenario where verbal prowess, spiritual power, public prestige, and a purpose-filled life are pursued and found, but without love. I mean, look at this list really quick with me. Verse 1, speaking in tongues of men and of angels. And what is that? Now, we're not going to get into the idea of speaking in tongues and those things today. That's a sermon for a whole nother day. The important thing to recognize is that this is speaking with power and authority straight from the influence of the Holy Spirit in one's life. Verse 2, we read about prophetic powers. Now, to be a prophet is to speak the very words of God. In some contexts, it is also to foretell and to see and to know the future. Verse 2, to understand mysteries, right? To get the deep things of God. Also in verse 2, having knowledge of the breadth and understanding of God. And at the end of verse 2, we read about faith to move mountains. Can you imagine having the faith to move Mount Blanca from I don't even know which direction we're facing. From over there to over there. Or from over there to over there, right? Can you imagine that? Have the power, all the power to do something like that. And not only that, but, but to give one's very life over to something. And not of any love. The challenge that we might face is that this is actually exactly what we have if we are unwilling to go out into the world and share the gospel boldly in word and deed. Amen? Amen. Pendulette gets that, do we? This is an impressive list. 
But Paul's point is clear. It's nothing, nothing at all without love. And the rest of 1 Corinthians 13 would kind of tell us what love is. And I got to tell you, this is not where we're going to land the sermon, but I want you to hear a few of these. Number verse 4, looking here, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, we can continue on in this list. We're not going to. Because we're not going to spend all our time talking about this. The point that I want us to see is that Paul's list here about love is the how-to of love. And if we want to love one another, we want to love the world, it's going to look a lot like this. But what this passage does not do is tell us the what of love. It's the how-tos, but not the what. To get the what, we have to turn to the one who is loved better than anyone has ever loved in the existence of the world. And that is Jesus. These verses are the how-to. They are the roadmap, but they are not the specifics of the what. And so we look to Jesus. We need to look to Jesus to see uh, that what he did was go and show, tell the gospel boldly. First, he did so in his words. And I want to just give you a caveat right here. We're not going to talk a lot about words today. We're not going to talk about what it means to tell the gospel boldly. Because that's phase two, I think. Now, I will say this really clearly. You cannot share the gospel without words. We live in in a world that uses words to speak truth. That is how we exist. I believe God that, that literacy is a gospel issue. That if we have illiterate people in our community, that they are being handicapped from understanding the truth of the word of God and scripture. That's a gospel issue. If we can't understand, we can't read, then we may miss out on what God is doing. And that's an area some of us might get excited about and passionate about. Say, you know what, I was a teacher my whole life. I'm going to go out and I'm going to teach kids to read so they might learn the gospel. Interestingly enough, if you look at history, it was actually in the reading of scripture that most kids and adults learned to read over the last 1,500 years. It was through the words of scripture that people came to literacy in the first place. Literacy is a gospel issue, but that's what we're talking about today. That was an aside. The gospel is, first of all, spoken, it is declared, and it is shared. But before people usually hear the gospel, they must see the gospel at work. Jesus spoke the gospel, but before he ever spoke the gospel, he showed the gospel. In his very life, he showed the gospel. We look to Jesus, the son of the living God, who gave up his spot in heaven in eternity. He gave that up and came here as a tiny baby, weak and frail. And Jesus came and ultimately would give up his life for us. Becoming a ransom for the captives, a hope to the hopeless, a rescue for his enemies. Jesus did not just do this for his friends. He did it for those who hated him. 
Not only in all of that, Jesus would give his life on the cross. We are called to do the same. Now, let me just be really clear. Most of us, I'm going to guess all of us, are not going to die a death on the cross. Things will have to turn real hard, real fast to get to that point. But some of us in our lives may be called to give up our lives in foreign mission fields. Domestically here, we might be called to give up jobs, family, friends. I've talked about that because I've experienced that. But every one of us is called to give up our lives as Christ did. And in that very moment, we are those who are like Christ showing the gospel. It might be our time. It might be our interests. It might be our talents. It might be our money. It might be our homes. It might be our social circles. I don't know what it'll be, but we are all called. And this is how Christ showed the gospel in the first place. He came and he gave up everything for those he loved and those who did not love him. And we can experience that in this world today. We are not loved by the world. We're not loved by the culture. And that's fine. The world did not love Jesus. And yet he loved them enough to show them the gospel. What I want to do today with the rest of our time, and we're going to pray in just a minute as we go into this, is I want to to give us a pattern. I can't say everything I want to say today. We don't have the time. I won't have the voice even if we did have the time and you were willing to give me the next eight weeks of your life. But what I want to do today is paint a picture and this is a picture that we can take and live out. So we want to talk about showing the gospel. Before we do that, I need to quickly say what the gospel is. The gospel is simply this, that Jesus Christ gave his life for sinners like you and I. It took me less than one second to say that. That is at the most basic core of what the gospel is. If somebody ever asks you, what is the gospel? Here's what I don't want to hear. I will ask you, you will say this. I will say, no, no, not that. Okay, if I ask you what the gospel is and you tell me the first four books of the New Testament, I'm going to roll my eyes at you. The gospel at its basic, most fundamental core is that Jesus Christ died for those who did not deserve it. You and I, that we can live. Now, there's a lot of ways to say that. I don't need those exact words, but I want that so ingrained in us because we need to move from that to the fact that the gospel is so much bigger than that. And that's what we're going to emphasize the rest of our time. First, again, I've already said we're going to pray. So let's pray for a moment because we need God to work in our hearts and our minds right now. Sovereign God, you wrote the gospel into existence. You played it out on the grandest of scales and in the microcosms of our own hearts. We are not called to everything, but Lord, we know that we as Christians are called to and gifted to specific ministry that you have called us to and set aside for us. And I pray, Lord God, that we would be a part of that and we would welcome that in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, a lot of things happen in the gospel. I don't have time to talk about them today. We're gonna talk about five Five things that happen in the gospel, and this is five ways that we, you and I, can live out the gospel in the world around us as a pattern to figure out other ways that we can live out the gospel. The first one, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, adoption. The first is adoption. Ephesians 5, 
Verse 1 tells us he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, I think we've talked about adoption the last three weeks here in one way or another. Adoption can seem really complicated and really hard to some of us. But I want to simplify adoption for us really quick because fundamentally what adoption is, is to make somebody who was not part of your family a part of your family. Period. Okay? It is to make somebody who was not a part of your family a part of your family now. This is what God did in the story of Scripture, in history. He took wandering, broken people, and he made them his own. He made them, he brought them into his family. He adopted them. John 1, verse 12 through 13 tells us, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, we talk about people being children of God all the time. And there's two ways that that is true. One, he created everything. He is the father of all. So in that, we are all humanity, children of God. But very clearly and specifically in scripture, we are told that to be part of God's proper family requires belief in him, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So yes, you might be a child of God, but you are not a child of God if you have not accepted the gospel, if you have not accepted what he did for you, the paying for your life, your sin, that you might live. Adoption. How do we do this? How do we do this as a church? Well, first of all, some of us might be called to adopt legally, financially, permanently. Adopt a child. And who better to raise broken and lost, wounded kids than gospel people in whom God is already at work, in whom God is, is growing to be more and more like the image of his son? Who better? Another way to do this would be to get involved in the foster care system. Maybe you can't adopt. Maybe you won't adopt. Maybe that's not the cards God has for you. But maybe there's a child that you could take in for a season. All right, here's another way. How about adopt a grandparent? How many of us know a, a senior adult who is by themselves utterly alone? Whether they're in a home or whether they're in a home next to you. How many of us know a senior adult who could use a family? And let me ask this, how hard would it be to go over to them and invite them to dinner? To take them to the store? To love on them? To let them be the pseudo-grandparent of your kids. Adopt a grandparent. How about this? Adopt a family. You say, hey, you know what? My kids, they're all, they're all way, way. My grandkids, they're all way away. But I know three houses down from me, there's a family and they're struggling. You're going to go out this year and you're going to go cut a Christmas tree somewhere. Well, maybe you invite that family to come with you and you pay for their cutting of a tree and you spend the day with them. Or maybe you know Christmas isn't going to be a great time because they don't have any money for toys. So what you do is you get together and you figure that out. You bless the heck out of them. See, adoption doesn't just have to be the, the formal process, the legal process of making a child part of your family. There are millions of ways to adopt people into your community. And as a church, we need to be a people that every time somebody walks through those doors out there or from the outside to the inside, we welcome them as one who could be part of us. 
I mean, one of the challenges of a church that's been around for a while and, and has a lot of folks who have known each other for a while is how are we going to receive new people who come through the door? Can they be a part of us this week? Or do they have to wait a month or a year, 10 years before they're really a part of what we're doing here? Okay, gospel people adopt into their own. Number two. Number two. Now, I'm going to tell you, this one might seem like the hardest of all of them to do. Some of you are going to be like, Pastor Matt, you've lost it a little bit. Bear with me for a moment. One of the things that happens in the gospel is that dead, the dead are raised, right? Number two is to raise the dead. Is that as gospel people, we need to be bringing someone or something back to life. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through four tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the power of the prince of the air. Now, there's a whole lot of details about what it means to be dead through all of that, but then moving to verse four tells us this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The gospel is about raising the dead. We talked about this last week, right? There's no boring testimony. Why? Because every testimony, the work of the power of God in someone's life is raising them from death to life. The gospel is all about bringing the dead and dying back to life. This is why I'm a church replanter and not a church planter. Because when I think about struggling and dying churches, as I did in Lahana, and as we think about here, the struggles that you all faced, what I believe about God is that he is the God who raises dead and dying things to life. And what better way to show that than in a community that should be alive and growing but isn't? God loves to see what can happen with a a people that have struggled and are raised in encouragement into the gospel. Let me give you some really good news. If you're a part of our church right now, you're already doing this one. Because we have decided together to see what God will do with us in Monta Vista and to the ends of the earth. So if you struggle with all five of these, just know number two, you kind of, you already got, you're participating in this already. Seeing what God is doing. But how else can we do this? How else do we, gospel people, live out, show the gospel? Well, You could volunteer at our local pregnancy center. Because what better way to see people raised from the dead but to see them not be killed at all? Another idea. Identify a struggling neighborhood and start praying for it. I've already heard there's communities, there's pockets, there's neighborhoods here in Monta Vista and up here in the valley that that are best to avoid. Well, Drive through that neighborhood on your way anywhere. And as you do so, pray for the people there. Begin to imagine what God might do if he puts you to work and puts our church to work there. How about that family down the road that the rest of the community has given up on? God didn't give up on you. That's the gospel truth. A really simple way 
Here's a really simple way to raise the dead. Encourage someone. We've got a lot of people struggling, working real hard through this life, getting nowhere. And what they need is a word of encouragement that would lift them up, build them up, and send them on their way. Most importantly, maybe one of the ways that we raise people from the dead is to invest in people to the point where we get to share the gospel with them and they come alive in Christ. Gospel people see the potential for life where the world sees only death. Let me ask you a question. Do you see what I'm doing here? Do you see the pattern? We're taking something that God did for us in the gospel and we're doing it for others. That's how we show the gospel boldly, okay? Number three, forgive when undeserved. Forgive when undeserved. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What God did in the gospel is forgive people who were completely undeserving of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a whole lot easier when somebody deserves it, right? When somebody hurts you, and then they spend the next like month trying to make it up to you and trying to show they're not going to do it again. Forgiveness comes out of that way easier than when somebody continues to sin, continues to hurt you, and you've got to find that spot of forgiveness in yourself. Church, biblical forgiveness is never earned. I'm going to say that again. Biblical forgiveness is never earned. Biblical forgiveness comes to people who do not deserve it. And that's the pattern we begin with. Now, I will also be really quick to tell you that restoration is a whole different subject. Restoration, the process of making right relationship, is secondary to forgiveness. Okay, just because you forgive does not mean restoration is going to take place. But let me tell you this. If restoration ever will take place, it is because forgiveness happened. We are made right with God because he forgave us first. So how do we do this? How do we live out the gospel? How do we show this? Well, we forgive people. We're quick to forgive And I got to tell you, that's got to start in the church. It's got to start with us. And then it's got to move to our families and it's got to move out from there. Are we going to be a people quick to forgive? I mean, I was thinking about this, even on my drive from center down here this morning. I was thinking, you know, there are going to be times when I say the wrong thing to you. There's going to be times when you say the wrong thing to me. And here's the question. Are we going to be quick to forgive? Or are we going to hold that and let that dwell and fester and turn into a cancer? got to start here okay we got to be people who are quick to forgive now pastor matt what about when the forgiveness is really hard well i tell you the process of that, that, that i try to work through when forgiveness is really hard for me and i can tell you i've got some forgiveness in my own heart in my own life that's really hard right now and has been for a while here's where it starts it starts with an honest prayer lord i don't want to forgive this person Just tell him, tell him. And that may be a week, a month, a year. That might be 10 years. Say, Lord, I don't want to forgive this person. And then one day you turn that into this. Lord, I don't want to forgive this person. Help me. Right? Simple prayer. Simple prayer. It starts with, Lord, I don't want to. Because honestly, we don't want to. 
Somebody's hurt us. I'd like to hold that bitterness for the rest of my life, thank you. But then it becomes, Lord, help me to do this. And then as the Lord begins to help you to do this, it gets further and further and further. And and before long, your heart is no longer bitter. And suddenly you wake up one morning and you realize that forgiveness has taken place and you didn't even know it. Because every time you drive past that person's house, you're no longer just angry or whatever else it is. We need to be a people that are quick to forgive. Now, part of that in the gospel is that God forgave us, but he didn't just let that sit out there. What did he do? He told us that. He told us that he forgives us, right? I mean, we have the gospel, the the truth that he forgave us, and then he tells us that he forgives us so that we can begin to live into that. And that's one of the things we need to do if we're going to show the gospel is communicate that, whether it's in a letter or speaking in forgiveness to someone. Maybe it's forgiving a debt a material problem, something like that. Gospel people forgive. And I just want to tell you, if forgiveness is a hard thing for you, I'd love to talk with you about what that looks like. I'd love to have some time with you to just pray with you on that. It's real. There's no denying that. But let's work on it. All right, number four. Number four. We need to love an enemy need to love an enemy. Matthew 5, 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. As Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, his final prayer was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We've come to a time in history, in our culture, in our country, where some of you, including myself, do not recognize the country we live in anymore. We don't recognize the culture. It's not what we grew up with. And let me just tell you, we have enemies. If you don't know that we have enemies, you need to know that we have enemies because if you don't know, then you're not ready for it. We have enemies. But this isn't unique to us. Think about Jesus. He had enemies, right? The thing is, is Jesus tells us very specifically what we're to do when we have enemies, and that is to forgive them. And I want to tell you why. There's two reasons why. Number one, we're told by Paul in the New Testament that our enemies are not the flesh and blood, but they are the powers, the principalities. They are the demons. They are the devil. And so when we have enemies, what we need to know is that they themselves are deceived. In all the book of Proverbs, there's one passage that stands out to me as the most influential passage in my life in the entire book, and it's Proverbs 4, 18 through 19. Here's what it says. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Now pause there real quick. Verse 18. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. What that means is that if you and I are in Christ, we see clearly. And not only that, we see more and more clearly every day. As the Holy Spirit works in us, we have clarity to what's going on in the world. We see how things really are. If you're a Christian, you have a spiritual power. I'll call it a spiritual superpower. You actually see the world the way it is. And praise God that we can see. And it's not of our own doing. It's because God has done that in us. 
But verse 19 tells us this, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. See, those who aren't in Christ are the opposite. They don't see. They can't see. They are like someone who, who walks through a house they're unfamiliar with, with all the lights off in the middle of the night. And they don't know that the thing they're walking into is the couch. And they don't know that the dog toy is right there and they're going to break their foot on it. Now, most of us have had kids or been around kids a lot in our lives. And there's a lot of reason to get angry or frustrated at a kid. Let me ask you this. Have you ever gotten angry at a kid for tripping? Right? No. Because they didn't mean to do it. And that's the same reason why we can't be angry at the enemies that we have. Because they don't know. They're stumbling around in the darkness. They don't even know what they're tripping on. And we're sitting there going, hey, look, watch out for that and watch out for that because we can see it, but they can't see it. So we don't get angry at people for stumbling around in the darkness. And we should not get angry at the enemies that we have because they're stumbling around in the darkness. They don't know. Robert Chapman was a pastor in rural England many, 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 many years ago. And what I think was probably one of the first true replants back in the 1800s. <laughs> Small town near Nowheresville, probably in many city people's mind, a lot like Monta Vista. One day, Pastor Chapman had the pleasure of a visit from one of his relatives. Now, uh, the pastor was from a very rich family. He actually forsook his entire wealth and everything to go be a pastor. When this family member arrived, he looked at the squalor that the pastor was living in. He, he said, what are you doing? How are you living here? And he looked in the pastor's cupboard and he realized there was almost no food in the cupboard. And so he said, well, I'm going to buy you groceries. And so he goes down to the local grocery. The pastor said, well, you need to go down to that grocery store, right down to that grocer and, and buy stuff from him. So he goes down and, and this very wealthy family member just kind of bought everything in the store, you know, just stocked up the pastor for a year. And as, as he's picking stuff out, the the, the grocer, the guy running the store is getting more and more excited because he's watching all his stuff. Going, this is the best day he's ever had financially. And he says, well, let me deliver all this for you. There's no way you can carry it all yourself. And he says, so what's the address? He says, oh, down at Pastor Chapman's house. You can bring it down there. And the, the grocer says, no, that can't be. That can't be. See, this grocer had spent the last five to 10 years criticizing him in the street, yelling at him publicly angry at this pastor. The grocer said, that can't be. He wouldn't send you down here to buy all this food. Well, that night that grocer went to church and that night that grocer gave his life to Jesus and became one of the pastor's strongest supporters. See, showing the gospel can be really powerful because the world doesn't expect it. They don't know it. And so suddenly something crazy happens because we've been called to that and the world takes notice. Gospel people love their enemies. Number five, gospel people reach into community and help broken people. 
Matthew 9:36. when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus once looked upon the city of Jerusalem from up above and, and he was broken in compassion for the, the lost people. And he wept, cried over the city. Let me ask you a question. When you see people lost in brokenness, lost in their sin, separate from God, do you have compassion or do you criticize? Gospel people have compassion. They have compassion. How do we do this? Well, we can meet needs as we're able to. We know people in this community who are in need. We can meet their needs as we are able to. I know of one mountain church, very small town, very poor community when you get away from the resorts. And every fall, they do a firewood giveaway. And they gather together for a weekend and they cut firewood and they split firewood and they give it away to their community. It started as a thing the church did for the community and what's become now is a thing the community does together. To know that people need firewood and to figure out a way to solve that, right? Another way we do this is to look past the reputations of those who are broken and wounded and weary. I remember when I first got to Lahana, there were a lot of really helpful people. We'd have a couple visit the church or an individual visit the church. And after church, I'd be like, yes, we had a visitor. This was great. And somebody very helpfully would say, oh, you don't really need to go visit with them. He's the town drunk. There's no hope for him. So don't, don't waste your time. There'd be somebody else who a couple would come and they say, oh, don't, don't focus on them. They just kind of hop churches every once in a while. You, they don't need you. Let me ask you, what were we, where would we be if uh, Jesus didn't look past our reputations? See, in the gospel, Jesus looks past who we are to who we're going to be in him. Amen. This is a challenge for us because we have a good experience with people. Let me tell you, if we're going to be gospel people, we need to be a people that have compassion on those who are lost and broken, weary and wounded. We need to love the heck out of people. Now, friends, I want to tell you in all of this, in all of this, this is not about results. Okay, the title of this sermon, if it had a title, I never title my sermons. But if it had a title, it would not be five ways to grow our church quickly. This is hard work. This is difficult work. This is challenging work. The reality, Christians, is that we are called to faithfulness, not results. I can't promise you that if we do these five things, that God's going to take that and we're going to explode as a church. I'd love that if that happened. The other thing that this isn't is exhaustive, right? There's five pieces of the gospel. These are five things that God did for you and for me when he brought us into salvation. Do you know how many more things there, that he did for us? For some of you, you might be sitting here going, you know what? None of those land for me today. Not a one of them. Because when God welcomed me into his family, he did this for me. 
right? I, I came to him not because of one of those five things, but because he did this over here for me. Because remember, the gospel is huge. And let me tell you, if that's the truth for you, then that may very well be the thing God is going to use to you to show the gospel to the people around you. So this is not exhaustive. This is a challenge to all of us to be creative Christians, to be creative in the gospel, to, to take what he's said and what he's done for us and to show that to the world, whether it's one of these five things or, or one of the many things I haven't mentioned. And here's the power that we have. Here's, here's the strength of this that we do have. John 14, 12. This might be the most powerful thing in all of scripture to those who are already Christians. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Jesus' words to us are that we are going to do greater things than he did. Somebody said, whoa, amen. <laughs> right? Now, by show of hands, how many of us are doing more than Jesus did? That's convicting, isn't it? You say, well, Pastor Matt, how can I do more than the Son of God? Right? How can we say that? How can Jesus have said that to us? Well, you think about Jesus' ministry, it barely went farther away than an area the size of this valley. But his church has reached to the ends of the earth. See, it's not an individual promise. It's not that, you know, Don Green Street is going to do more than Jesus. It's that we do more than Jesus. As he empowers us to do what? To live the gospel boldly. To be like him. So church, for some of you right now, I just pray none of this is going over or through your, in your ear and out the other. Right? I pray that this right now, that, that right now you might be sitting there going, you know what, Pastor Matt, I have never heard anything like this before. I have never once heard that my job as a Christian, is to show the gospel boldly. You know, most of the time when pastors talk about this, they, they talk about the evangelism side, the sharing the gospel side. Here's what I know. I know there's nothing I can tell you this morning. If you're not already sharing the gospel, to convince you to do so. We're too afraid. We're too scared. We don't know how to do it. Now, we can talk more about that in discipleship, and I think our hearts can change in that. The Lord can move in that. But here's what I know. Where none of us, or where few of us, are willing to go strike up a conversation with a stranger, where we struggle in fear and worry, every time somebody's ever come to me and asked about Jesus, you know what I can do? I can talk for like an hour and a half. Right? Do you know how you have those conversations? It is by showing the gospel first. It opens the door to the verbal. So church, I just want to lay that on us. And, and if you're feeling the weight of this today, if you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, hey, that's not been me, but it needs to be. then today is a great day to commit yourself to the Lord. Today is a great day to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm willing to do that. I want to do that.
Use me in this way. Today's a great day to turn to him. Now, let me tell you this. If you've never given your life to Jesus in the first place, you can't do that second piece. You need to accept him as your Lord and Savior. If you've never done that and you want to know more about that, come talk to me after church today or during communion even. And let us talk about what it means to follow Jesus, to know him, to be saved by him, and then to be empowered and used by him to show the gospel boldly in our community and to the world. Amen?